Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Facebook is planning to shake up the finance world with a new digital currency called Libra. Our old friend Merrin Somerset-Webb is here to tell us what she likes and doesn't like about the idea. What can Mole Flanders, the literary anti-heroine, tell us about modern-day bank fraud and how smaller shareholders need to stand up for their rights? A hard-hitting report from the Law Commission blames investment platforms for eroding them. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Social media giant Facebook recently unveiled plans to launch its own global digital currency called Libra. In the words of founder Mark Zuckerberg, sending money should be easy as sending a photo. This technology, coupled with Facebook's huge scale, could potentially revolutionise the global payment system, but will regulators ever let it happen? Joining me now on the line is our star columnist, Merrin Somerset-Webb. Welcome, Merrin. Hello. So why are people so worried about Libra? What's getting them going? Well, it's interesting. Everybody's worried about something different. You know, cryptocurrency uh, purists are worried about it because, they, as far as they're concerned, it's not a proper cryptocurrency. So real cryptocurrency is all about privacy and freedom. They're what they call decentralized and permissionless. So anyone can use them anytime. No one runs them. There's no central authority. No one can be prevented from using them, et cetera, et cetera. And Libra isn't going to be any of, any of those things. No. So cryptocurrency purists don't like it very much. Uh, regulators find it very difficult because what is it? Is it an investment product? Is it a currency? Is it, the, um, is it a starter or warm-up for Facebook or the Libra Association anyway, somehow becoming a bank? So it's very difficult from a regulatory point of view. And then, of course, monetary authorities find it very, very difficult because what happens if it really works and you have a global currency that isn't run by a central bank or mm. a representative of a government somehow, that disrupts global monetary policy completely and uh, is a threat, of course, to monetary sovereignty of different nations. So, you know, everyone has something to worry about, but it's, it's not entirely clear how it'll work yet. You know, there's a lot of detail still to come. So we're right at the beginning of this process, but that doesn't mean it hasn't caused a lot of hysteria already. Well, you wrote in your column for the money section last Saturday that in many ways it might actually be good for us consumers. Well, absolutely. I mean, everyone who's looked at it so far, or in the main people are looking at it from the point of view of being a cryptocurrency expert or from the point of view of being worried about monetary policy. But if you think about consumers and what we want, and one of the, one of the parts of the, of the financial world that has not been disrupted at all so far in this, this huge wave of technology that we've seen over the last decade is payment systems. It's still 
difficult and boring to pay people money. There's a lot of friction involved in it. So if Libra were to work as a genuinely international currency that we refer to as a Libra rather than in terms of another currency and that we can transfer money to people without friction and without much cost, there has to be a tiny little fee attached to it, but you know, it would basically be effectively free at the point of use for consumers. In that sense, this is something that consumers want. So while you worry, might worry about trust and privacy and regulation and all that kind of thing, if you're on the non-consumer side, from the point of a, of a consumer, what, what's not to like here? Well, exactly. And one of the readers who commented on your, your column summed up the views of many by saying, wake up, regulators, Libra is going to be huge. And certainly with everyone spending so much more money online and Facebook turning into a, you know, an, an online shop. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and one of the reasons why, you know, cryptocurrencies haven't got much traction so far, uh, well, there's all sorts of, of, of reasons, but one of the main things is there's friction in them, but also it's difficult to get ordinary people to sign up to Bitcoin. It's complicated. There's no, there's no sort of way in that's very simple. And with Libra, of course, the way in is extremely simple because you're already on Facebook, you're on Messenger, you're on WhatsApp, etc. So it's a great starting point for anyone to use one of these new currencies. Now, you've addressed the issue of privacy mm-hmm. in your column because lots of people who are listening to the podcast who are probably using Facebook or maybe not mm-hmm. using Facebook anymore, mm-hmm. obviously Cambridge Analytica and the privacy scandal was a very big deal. Facebook knowing what we're spending our money on could be a step too far. Well, it depends how you feel about privacy. I mean, I've always been concerned about the way that people give their financial data over. And one of the things I've written about before is that, you know, if you worry about how much information on you search agents have, something like Google, etc., has an enormous amount of data that it can use to guess what you might want, what you might be doing, what you might be buying. But someone who has your financial data doesn't have to guess. They know all that already. So yes, you have to have a pretty low privacy threshold to think using Libra is just fine. But actually, all the evidence we've seen so far is that people do have pretty low privacy thresholds. You know, if they, if they didn't, they wouldn't be using Facebook in the first place, and they certainly wouldn't be using any of the financial apps that people seem to be relatively keen on. So, you know, I'm not sure that privacy worries are going to be the deal breaker here. It's also worth noting on the trust front that Facebook is well aware that it's not exactly the most trusted brand in the world, <laughs> and is not going into this alone. You know, it might want to trust Facebook with our money, but we certainly trust MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, etc. We all happily use them to move our money around the place. And they're all part of the uh, Libra Association as well. So this is not, Facebook's already taken steps to make sure that it's not just about the extent to which we trust Facebook. It's about the extent to which we trust an organization that can set aside from Facebook. Well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset Webb. If you are a reader in Scotland, take note, Merrin tops the bill at our next FT Money Reader event next week in Edinburgh. To be held on Wednesday, the 3rd of July, our Roots to Retirement event will discuss exactly that. If you'd like to buy a ticket, they're £35, and view full terms and conditions, visit our website, ft.com slash moneyevents. Financial scams are said to be spiralling out of control, according to sobering research by which the consumer group and the array of methods that fraudsters are now using to part us from our hard-earned cash are certainly mind-boggling. Romance scams, phishing, spoofing, these are just a few of the types of crimes that have flourished in our modern era. But could we turn to an 18th century novel for some valuable lessons on how to defend ourselves? Joining me now in the studio is James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money. Welcome, James. Thank you. So, 
I've got to ask you, what on earth does Mole Flanders have to do with online fraud? Well, it sounds pretty random, doesn't it? But uh, <laughs> you would have seen possibly that there's been quite a lot about Daniel Defoe, the, the author of Mole Flanders, um, recently, because it's 300 years since he wrote Robinson Crusoe, uh, which is one of the earliest novels in the English language. And I picked up Mole Flanders because I'd heard good things about it. And as I was reading it, purely as a, as a rattling good read, which it is, this wonderful heroine uh, in it, uh, the woman who sort of falls from grace into a life of crime and, <laughs> and, as they say in those days, debauchery. And I read it, but it also contains this compendium of scams which uh, which Defoe puts her through instead of she becomes the protagonist uh, criminal. It goes through all these scams and uh, commits various crimes. And they're fascinating. And as I was reading it, I, it became clear to me that there are huge analogies with today's, even though the, the means are different, the technology is very different, the principles remain quite similar. So to give you an example, okay. she, in one of her earliest crimes is, is she spots a house, a house fire, her family home is on fire. It's a terrible thing in 18th century London and rushes in before there are too many people around to see the family uh, running here, here and there in panic, offers to the mother to help the children, take the children to the house of a respected neighbour, who she claims to know but doesn't actually. <laughs> uh, the mother, in huge gratitude, said, yes, to take my children uh, while I rescue various other things in this house. And just before she leaves, Mull says, and is there anything else you would like me to secure? And the mother presses a bundle of the family's valuable plate and, and jewellery into her hands. Uh, she then uh, leaves with the children, palms the children off on a, on a bystander and takes this booty <laughs> home to, be, uh, to look over uh, her ill-gotten gains. And of course, actually, this is a one-off. Bears, it's quite a good example of what one might call an authorised push payment scam. Where I in like modern what you terms, did there. <laughs> on the, on, in modern terms, it usually happens by email, where you you pretend to be, you know, a criminal will pretend to be a trusted person, such mm. as a solicitor or a builder, and somehow manage to intercept an email, send that to a to a person expecting to make a payment to that trusted provider, and instead they find themselves making a payment to a criminal, uh, but they've authorised it. So. Up until recently, there's been very little redress for the victims of that crime. Oh, absolutely. A great comparison. Now, there's a lot of fraud around credit and debit card use these days, and that's probably where the mole analogy might break down. She didn't have one of well, those yeah, stuff in her drawers. I don't, I don't want to push this too hard, <laughs> but... Uh, but actually, there's, there is one uh, tale that did strike me as, as being relevant here. Uh, it's a rather good one where Defoe has a mole hanging around outside a, a Thames warehouse, a goods warehouse, where goods are coming in off, off the river and going off to other places all the time, valuable boxes of goods. She's hanging around. A, ma a messenger boy comes from a wealthy house and, and says, can you direct me to the, to the warehouse keeper? And, and she says, oh, no, it's closed, but let me see if I can help you. you know, what, what details do you have? And he shows her the letter, which contains, of course, the name of the sender, the recipient, the goods and their type, the amount of goods and the box markings. <laughs> um, and so she sends him on his way and says, Look, you've really got to come back tomorrow morning when the, when the warehouse is open. Immediately, he goes off. She then writes a letter uh, containing all of those details, which she then presents. She finds the warehouse keeper and presents it to him. 
and he delivers the the box of goods straight into her hands, which she then takes off and has fenced by her her landlady, her corrupt landlady known as the governess. So, in fact, this is exactly how card ID theft happens, where people apply for credit and debit cards in your name and they use your personal details, which they have somehow obtained, uh, in order to do that. And it might be through a bank or it might be through a retailer. But this is this is another reason why you have to be very careful with your personal details. And it also has analogies with phishing fraud, which we mentioned in the introduction, where criminals set up very convincing websites, usually government agencies like the DVLA, who issue driving licenses, or worse, HMRC, that's been a very popular one, or even the TV licensing authority. They'll send you a text or an email saying, you know, you haven't paid your TV license or, you know, you're going to receive a tax fine. And people are taken to these websites where they then put in all of those informations, which can then be used against them, as you say. So not much has really changed. But I suppose the difference between then and now is that hackers today can commit fraud on thousands of people with the click of one button. I mean, there is a lot of truth in that. You have algorithmic uh, you know, hackers who can use these, these means by which they just simply splurge uh, out their scams across thousands of people in the hope that they will pick up a few, that a few of them will get through the, the barriers, the safety barriers. But we shouldn't forget that there were instances, even in Defoe's time, where thousands of people were effectively scammed, uh, the main one being the South Sea uh, Company, which uh, Defoe warned people against in 1720, two years before he what? wrote Mole Flanders. I didn't know that. Yes, absolutely. He warned people, uh, he, warns, he warned promoters against providing false information uh, in order to manipulate the share price of South Sea Company and related assets. And this this um, South Sea Company in 1720, its shares went from 100 pounds in January to 1,000 pounds in in by the middle of the year, and then crashed right back down again after unscrupulous promoters had had said that it was riches to be had on on essentially non-existent businesses and investment opportunities, and thousands of people were left, uh, you know, lost money they were they were in debt they were left destitute and bankrupt there were suicides this was a a real convulsion uh, in the financial system so we shouldn't assume that there weren't mass problems even in that age well daniel defoe certainly a forerunner for andrew bailey perhaps at the financial conduct authority but finally james before i let you go what are the lessons that we can learn from this to defend ourselves against financial fraud? Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to suggest that people should read Moflan as, uh, as, a, <laughs> as a lesson against fraud, because actually they should read it because it's a rattling good read with a fantastic story. But it does provide this, uh, this sense, this illustration that the psychology of scams remains the same over centuries. And essentially people will try and use, they'll get some little personal detail, which they will used to make you believe there's someone else or to win over your trust or to blackmail you. And they will use that to accumulate further information, which they can perhaps give them access to to more really valuable stuff. So the, the whole point is be very careful about your personal information. Just because someone provides you with some basic information, it doesn't, don't assume who they say that they are who they say they are. And you know, in modern times, you should watch out for the things you post on social media and also go through your old social media accounts and make sure that there is not uh, information on there that you've forgotten about that could provide people with a way in. 
Well, thanks very much there to Mole Flanders. Sorry, James Pickford of the FT Money team. You can read James's column, The Mole Flanders Guide to Online Financial Scams, now on ft.com slash money. And if you do read the book, drop us a line to let us know what you thought. Finally, as a shareholder, do you feel able to stand up for your rights? Well, the Law Commission has warned this week that the way many of us hold our shares on DIY investment platforms like Hargreaves, II or AJ Bell is to blame for a damaging disconnect between small investors and the boardrooms of companies they hold shares in. Here to talk about the story is Kate Bailey, the FT Money reporter. Welcome, Kate. Hello. So what's the problem here? Uh, Well, private individuals in the UK own around 12.3% by value of the UK's listed companies, Mm. according to the most recent data from the Office for National Statistics. But almost none of those are the legal owners of their shares due to the pooled nominee accounts favoured by modern brokers. Now, pooled nominee accounts make it much easier for customers to buy and sell investments. So instead of holding share certificates like most of us used to, our broker or platform holds the shares and funds in their own name and they're the ones listed on shareholder registers. So it's much faster and less cumbersome, but it means that you are the beneficial owner of your shares, not the legal owner. So what will be considered in the review that the Law Commission is carrying out? Well, campaigners want to see beneficial shareholders or beneficial owners added to shareholder registers. So that would mean that anyone who holds Shell, BP, you know, any company would actually be listed on that company's shareholder register. And they say that this would be a vital kind of step forward in ensuring more transparency over who really owns the companies uh, that we invest in. The Law Commission itself is is very worried about the corporate governance implications of this disconnect between shareholders and companies, uh, which means that investors don't automatically have the right to vote on company motions. We don't automatically uh, receive annual reports and all of that kind of stuff. It means that investors have to work very hard to express their rights currently. So... What about the platforms? What could they do to ensure that the voices of smaller shareholders are actually heard? Well, it has to be said that a lot of them are doing a lot on this. And most of them, if you ask, they will let you vote by proxy on the issues that you want to vote on. Uh, You can opt to be sent annual reports and opt to attend AGMs with the platform's help. So so there is progress being made here. uh, But there's obviously more work to be done, particularly digitally, on making it easy for investors to express those rights. And uh, and also to educate investors on this whole situation. I think a lot of people don't realise that there is this disconnect and that they are not the legal owners. So there's a bit of educational work to be done too. Thanks very much there to Kate Bearley for more on that story. Read it in full on ft.com slash money. That's all from The Money Show this week. But if you would like to get in touch with me or our team of writers, or even suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast, email us money at ft.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter for the latest news updates at FT Money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.